Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the John and Mary Papajohn Education Center in Des Moines. Thank you very much for joining us. Our topic this evening is Nationhood Redefined. This is the final event in the University of Iowa's Provost Global Forum, a three-day symposium on the topic, the nation, the state, and the global redefinition of self-determination. We're fortunate to have a distinguished panel of experts with us for this evening's conversation. And uh, basically what we're asking is, what defines a nation or a state? What's the meaning of sovereignty, and how do communal or religious identity figure into demands for self-determination? The world community in 2016 is a fractured place with aspirations to statehood like those we've seen in South Sudan and Palestine, as well as civil disruptions and realignments uh, like those we've seen in Crimea, Ukraine, and Russia. Amidst all of this, there are non-state actors like ISIS challenging governments and established states. In this program, we'll attempt to understand some of the structural challenges to the nation-state system and international law, the conflicts that can lead to civil war, and the human tragedy that lies behind so many thwarted dreams. So I'd like to introduce my guests for this discussion. Just next to me is Nathan Miller, the director of the International Legal Clinic at the University of Iowa College of Law, also assistant director in the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. Thank you, Nathan. Next to him is Matthew, Matthew LaRiche, visiting assistant professor at Memorial University Department of Political Science. Thank you for coming. And at the far end, we have Judge Charles L. Smith III, Chief Judge of the 4th Judicial District of Iowa, now retired, and former president of the Assembly of ULEX Judges and member of the Supreme Court of Kosovo. So, Thank you all for being here. And Nathan, let me start with you, if you will. You and your colleague, Adrian Wing, have assembled these uh, guests to be here to speak to the public and to one another about just what we're seeing on the world stage these days. And I'd just like to ask the more general question, is the global world order that we've seen since roughly the end of World War II, is it now dissolving? Are we seeing things we didn't expect to see? Uh, I hope it's fair to say that it's not dissolving, but it's certainly facing a number of challenges. Um, one, which I'll just mention briefly, it's not exactly the subject today, but one is, although it's related, is, is the use of force. Uh, after World War II, the UN charter system came into being that envisioned a new way to order the use of force between states, which was to severely restrict it, except in cases of self-defense. Uh, that was before a concern for human rights and the way governments treat their citizens really arrived in a big way on the world stage. And one of the developments we've seen, particularly in the last decade, decade and a half, is that that concern for human rights and that concern for how governments treat their citizens has reached such a high level that we have begun to see calls for states to be able to use a military force to stop widespread and systematic abuses of human rights, as happened, of course, in the case of uh, Iowa's and my dear friends, uh, the Kosovars. Related to that is, I would argue, although some of my co-panelists over the last couple of days might challenge that, that in that same context, uh, the international community has become more open to the calls by at least some entities, perhaps not others, to establish themselves as new states, to secede from the state that they were previously a part of on the basis of the 
uh, persecution of the population of that territory by uh, elements elsewhere in, in the state. And so that, those types of claims are themselves very much a challenge to the post-World War II world order, very much a challenge to ancient principles of international law that include territorial sovereignty, the, the, the notion that a sovereign state has control over the territory within its borders and that you can't just go seceding willy-nilly. Um, and so I sort of, along with my colleagues at the College of Law, thought we might organize this symposium in order to look at three contemporary examples of entities that either are in the process of trying to establish themselves as new states or have, in the case of South Sudan, and look at the challenges that faced them both in the process of defining themselves and what happens after. The way it stands right now, in order to be recognized by the international community, um, there has to be sort of an acceptance by the, the there needs to be some sort of spoken or unspoken sense in the world that this is a particularly justified case and either we need to step in with peacekeeping forces or we need to take some action or we need to at least be concerned on an international level rather than just back away from it altogether. Uh, that's exactly right. And I think that's a sentiment that was echoed by a number of my co-panelists over the last couple of days. Uh, I could get into the weeds on the international law, and I, and I may yet, uh, but um, at its base, an, some entity that wants to be its own independent sovereign nation is, in the end, not going to be able to accomplish that without widespread political support throughout the world. Um, in the case of Palestine and their efforts in that direction, they, of course, lack at present, at least, the support of the United States, but are managing some steps nonetheless towards that. Um, other countries like Kosovo and South Sudan both do enjoy significant support from the United States, although in the case of Kosovo, there's significant opposition from other parts of the world. So absolutely a uh, very strong international consensus is, is absolutely necessary for uh, some country to establish itself uh, these days. Well, Matthew, I know that you spent a lot of your life in South Sudan, researching South Sudan. Help us understand what the circumstances are uh, in Sudan and then South Sudan and where we are today. Yes. Um, um, I, I mean, I think the, the, the sort of some of the, the fundamentals of, of, of what's going on is it's a, it's a society of, of significant diversity. And um, despite the nature of the conflict and some groups emerging that, that had common enemies and, and what have you, the society is still very, very divided and, uh, and there's a strong competition for the political dispensation and economic dispensation that exists since they've um, you know, gained first a, a level of autonomy in 2005 when they had a peace deal and, and now since becoming a, an independent state. It's a significant competition for um, access to wealth and resources, and, and, and sadly, um, a very useful tool in that competition has been the leveraging of, of ethnic identity and, um, and, and some aspects of religious uh, identity. And so the, some of the commonalities that people in especially South Sudan uh, actually have have been, have been really challenged and, and undermined, and so focused on, and the differences have been focused on and used to 
to make the conflict all the more vile and, and, and dangerous. I mean, in, in terms of the cases of, of, of conflict and, and international humanitarian engagement, international action, I mean, it's one of the longest standing conflicts and engagements um, that we've had. So um, after a series of peace deals and, and failed peace deals, the international community is, um, like anybody who's been involved in the place for a long time, is, is, is frustrated and confused. Um, and, and left with very few creative ideas into where to take things or move things forward. So it, it's, it's a reasonably depressing moment for anybody who's, who's there. I mean, we, most of us who are connected to the place still have a lot of hope, and, 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 uh, you know, and, and there are possibilities, but it's, it, it's still a pretty negative moment. Yeah. In some communication we had before the program, you wrote that top-down state and nation-building has failed in South Sudan. Um, and what efforts have there been made to create a, a unified... Well, there's been a lot of work. I mean, even before the peace deal that, that resolved the... That, that changed the nature of the conflict, the civil war that was happening in all of Sudan, um, you know, there were efforts by leaderships uh, in, in the different armed groups, um, and, and international engagement with those groups. Um, then afterwards, after the peace deal was, was resolved, the attempt to sort of build institutions, um, and it very much was an attempt at top-down state building. It, this, uh, you know, the only way most of the international community knows how to do any of this stuff is, is to start from the top and the top leaders. And, and so South Sudan's a case where, you know, you have this wide population of, of people with, with great differences, and you know, controlling it and influencing it from the top really hasn't been particularly effective. And whether it be, you know, efforts to, to reorganize and, and, and structure the South Sudanese military, right? You know, uh, whether it be the, the creation of, of centralized institutions of governance to deal with and, 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 and manage uh, finances and revenue and that sort of thing. It really hasn't effectively worked. And, and in a place like South Sudan where, where customary societies are so strong, um, you know, the attempt to bring in um, ideas from outside and how to do that really hasn't been very successful. Mm -hmm. and, and what about this notion of integrating formerly belligerent forces? Um, uh, you've been talking about that a little bit, but if, if there is an effort Everyone sort of agrees. What we need to try to do is reconcile these very great differences between us. What about this peace and reconciliation um, idea that, at least for a time, seemed to be working in South Africa? I mean, those are two different things. I mean, one going back to the the first civil war in, in Sudan was resolved in 1972 in a peace deal, and it, and it was a regionally negotiated peace deal, and it included the integration of the formerly belligerent forces mm -hmm. into a new national army. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of reasons why and logics why you might do that. So in, in 2005, similar terms were included in, in, in that peace deal. And, um, and, and following that, there were further deals struck with, with groups who sat outside, continued to sit outside. And the idea was that if you could integrate them into a single military force, not only would you bring them under the control of a, a central command, and, and you might be able to resolve the fundamental issues because if, if those armed groups are in the same institution, well, you know, then you've actually, you know, resolved some of the core issues at play. But in fact, what's, what we've really seen is, is rather we've created very volatile institutions that, you know, are, are prone to cleavage because at none of these junctures were, 
where any of these groups really ever integrated. It was never really an integration. It was integration in name. Um, and, and it was used as a, you know, the, these ideas were used as a way to, um, you know, to offer individuals titles and, and, and resources to effectively placate them for a short period of time and, and it, things then fall apart. Mm -hmm. so, um, so the idea of integrating formerly belligerent forces, which is generally accepted in terms of peace talks and, and, and power sharing arrangements, it's one of the things that you sort of always have to include. Um, in the South Sudan case, in Sudan case anyway, I, I'd argue it, it's, it's been a fundamental aspect of, of, of continued violence in the cycle of conflict rather than peace. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of a, a reconciliation process and a national reconciliation process, well, that's, a, I mean, that's, that's something that's different altogether. And in fact, engaging in an in integration of these belligerent groups without a real and honest and sincere reconciliation process between communities and peoples and bringing them together, um, that's part of the problem why this doesn't work because that reconciliation process really has very little basis um, and it's been politicized as well. Um, so the attempt to try and do something like that you know, was always peripheral to the major efforts and then when it did start it was politicized by some of the key players involved and so unfortunately now there's the risk that, that maybe even a national reconciliation process has been um, tainted with um, the kind of politics um, that leads to division and, and violence rather than being the sort of central uh, tool to actually bring, a communi commu bring communities together, which, which it could be and there was potential uh, for, for that to be the case. Hopefully there, there still is. I think there are, uh, there are lots of points of, of commonality that could, could lead toward that and, and hopefully institutions like uh, some of the different churches and that sort of thing who are, are significant in, in the community and society, you know, could become pillars to that process, but it's still remain to be seen. Yeah. Well, Judge Smith, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this work with Kosovo. You're a judge from the 4th Congressional District here in Iowa and living over near Council Bluffs, and not too long after you retired, you find yourself in... And Three days uh, after I retired, <laughs> I was on my way to Kosovo. I, in 2009, um, I had been previously contacted by uh, some, some officials in Kosovo, American officials who were working with the UN, and they, were, they offered me the opportunity to go to Kosovo in 2006, and I couldn't do it because of my obligations to my job as a district judge. <clears throat> but I kept interested, and then in 2009, uh, went through the appropriate authorities and applied for a position and was selected by a panel of uh, European judges, frankly, to come uh, as a trial, criminal trial judge to Kosovo. So as I said, three days after my retirement here, I was on my way to Kosovo, and I was assigned to Mitrovica, which is the northernmost big city in, uh, in Kosovo. It's a divided city. The Ibar River divides it into a Kosovo-Albanian population on the south and a Kosovo-Serbian population on the north. Uh, when I arrived there, it was a tense situation. It wasn't, I, I didn't feel in danger, but it was a tense situation. situation. The courthouse had uh, razor wire around it with an armored personnel carrier in the, in the front and armed uh, uh, soldiers there at all times for our protection. But we managed and we tried 20, 25 cases in the first uh, 10 or 11 months that we were there and uh, had good results. We tried major crimes, major murder, rape, uh, trafficking in people and drugs, uh, uh, 
weapons charges, things of, seri of a serious nature. Uh, so that's how I got involved. That's what I did at first. Would these cases be considered, uh, among the cases that we consider war crimes trials, or this is There were a few ca cases that came up that were considered war crimes, uh, but primarily they were, I would say they were more post-war chaos crimes, crimes that occurred when there was an unsettlement in the country, there was still uh, uh, some difficulty with law enforcement. Uh, so they, they, that was that type of thing. And, and the other reason we heard those cases because there weren't adequate resources in the local judiciary to hear those cases. So we took them over because people had been in long-term detention awaiting trial, maybe two, two and a half, even three years. So to get those people out of detention, out of that violation of their human rights, we, we brought them into trial, got the case completed. They were either convicted and sent to prison or, or put on probation, or their case was dismissed. So how is it that a U.S. judge then becomes the president of the ULEX oh, yeah. group of judges? Well, I, after I worked for nine months, I was then asked to be, if I was interested in being the vice president of the ULEX judges. Uh, it was called the Assembly of ULEX judges. So, and a member of the Supreme Court of Kosovo. So I did that, and I did that for the next 15 months, and then my second year extension of contract was up and I went home because I had obligations back in my district as a senior judge. Um, and then six months later, I was approached from people in the EU also and wanted to know if I would be interested in coming back as the president or the chief judge, if you will, of the European, uh, or of the uh, international judges. So I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And were there, um, uh, conflicts in the way the, the European Union judges saw certain sorts of things, or the differences in the kinds of laws? Yeah, yeah the, the criminal law itself was, is similar. Uh, Murder is defined the same way almost everywhere in the world, but the procedure law was vastly different. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the only way to do it is basically to embrace it uh, and to understand the logic of their way of doing it, because I'm not going to bring my system over and say you're going to do it my way. I had to become a European judge. Uh, Kosovo models itself after all the other European nations in the way they handle a criminal trial, and primarily we were only doing criminal trials. So, yeah, you just kind of have to become a European for the time being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so what do you feel was, uh, when you think back, what do you think you added to the process of, of Kosovo's movement forward? Well, uh, and I've said this before, when, when an organization like ULEX, which is a huge European organization that I worked for, 3,000 people, comes into a country like Kosovo, uh, you, you have to really guard against being paternalistic. You have to really guard against saying, uh, using the phrase, these people, you know, uh, you hear that a lot. So one of the things I wanted to do, well, let me first explain, as the president, I had enormous power to take any case I wanted without appeal from the local judges and bring it to ULEX for a stated reason. So that's a tremendous amount of power. And then it would be assigned to two, European, two international judges and one local judge that would, to hear the case. So obviously we and we used it a lot. Two or three hundred cases were taken over in the first few years. My view when I got there as president was it was time to pass some of the power back to the local judiciary. It had been improved, it had been reformed, uh, a lot of judges, or all the judges were re-vetted and reassigned. So 
I felt more confidence in the judiciary. So what we, I did was refuse to take over a lot of cases and left it to the local judiciary. Or when we did take over a case for a good reason because of an ethnic divide or something, I would put, many times I would put us in the minority and the local judges in the majority. And I think it worked and I think it's still working and ULEX is easing back its numbers. There are not nearly as many people there as there were when I was there. So I felt that was a significant contribution. Well, so Nathan, let me circle back to you. You've had a few days of discussion here about these topics, and what are the highlights that, that pop up in your mind from the discussions you've heard, people who may have had ideas that challenge some beliefs of yours? Uh, sure. So one of the things that I have really enjoyed over the last few days and, and really in, uh, try to kind of strive for in my professional career generally is an exchange of ideas from people of different countries who are facing similar issues. So in putting together the panelists for, uh, and the keynote speaker for this series of events, I really wanted in looking at Kosovo and Palestine and South Sudan to hear voices from Kosovars, from South Sudanese, uh, from Palestinians. And, and I think we've, we've done that and, and one of the things that I have found over the course of my career working in different places is everyone believes their particular country's conflict and post-conflict development to be unique. And they are absolutely right. Um, at the same time though, there are a lot of commonalities between the ways in which different countries approach how to rebuild themselves after conflict, approach how to forge a national identity, um, and in, the case, in these three cases, how to actually establish themselves as an independent state. And so I think just sharing those ideas was wonderful. Something that was challenging a little bit to me, uh, I'm an international lawyer. As a lawyer, I like rules. As a lawyer, I like principles, and I like them neatly applied in each and every situation, and I don't like to admit that politics intrudes on my nice, pristine edifice of the law. Um, and so it's one thing to say, well, we have uh, precedents about new ways to establish states. We have new techniques that are being developed by uh, new countries that are trying to establish themselves in, as, as new states, and this is wonderful and this is precedent. And then to have folks with a much more political background come in and say, you know, that's all fine and dandy, but at the end of the day, it's backroom politics. And he's unfortunately not with us here today, but we had Karn Ross uh, with us uh, during our panels, who is a former British diplomat who has left the Foreign Service and now started and has been running for a number of years, a not-for-profit that provides high-level diplomatic services to countries that might not otherwise have the resources to make their way through the labyrinthine corridors of the top levels of international diplomacy. And uh, he put it to the most bluntly. He said, I'm in back rooms with these folks all the time, and at the end of the day, it's just politics. Now, I don't know that at the end of the day I agree with him, but uh, that's, a, uh, that's a competition that you frequently get between international lawyers and, and international politicians. It'll have politics. There's no question about that. But it has to have a legitimate, effective legal system and some sort of a constitution on which 
there are guiding principles. Mm -hmm. uh, politics is everywhere, and it continues to be everywhere, and we see that in our country right now, especially. Uh, but hopefully there is a rule of law that uh, under, underlies and under, underpins everything. Thank you all so much for taking part in this panel. I want to thank very much Nathan Miller and Matthew LaRiche and uh, Judge Charles Smith. Thank you very much. And I hope that all of you will stay with us for part two of this conversation while we take a closer look at how Iowa played a role in the lives of Kosovo citizens and the newly established Republic of Kosovo. All World Campus programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and for International Programs, thank you for being with us. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the John and Mary Papa John Education Center in Des Moines. This is part two of our three-part series called Nationhood Redefined. This World Canvas program is the last event in the 2016 Provost Global Forum, a three-day symposium investigating the nation, the state, and the global redefinition of self-determination. The Provost Global Forum is the premier annual event at the University of Iowa focused on international and global issues. The forum has a particular goal of building connections between the university and the state of Iowa. And in this segment, we have the opportunity to remind Iowans and others of the connections that have long been building between our state and the Republic of Kosovo. Uh, Kosovo, once part of Serbia, declared its independence in 2008 and continues to seek recognition of its sovereignty. A long and fruitful relationship between Kosovo and the state of Iowa began in 2003 when members of the Iowa National Guard were deployed in Kosovo, helping to stabilize the country after the conflict. Um, this very personal connection has resulted in an Iowa-Kosovo sister-state relationship and the establishment of a Kosovo consulate in Des Moines. So I'm very uh, pleased and honored to introduce our next three guests to you. Dr. Valon Mortezai is Deputy Minister in the Republic of Kosovo's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Thank you, Valon, for being here. Oh, yes. Next to him is Lieutenant Colonel Michael One of the Iowa National Guard. Thank you very much for being here. Absolutely. Thank mm -hmm. you. And at the far end, we have Kim Heidemann, who's the Executive Director of Iowa Sister States. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Happy to have you here. So, Dr. Mertzai, if you could take us back, those of us who may not remember how things happened in Kosovo, could you give us a, sort of a brief uh, description of these last many years when uh, you've gone through so much transition? First of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you and for all the hospitality that was shown to us as Kosovo delegation in these days here in Iowa uh, from the people of University of Iowa and others, people that have contributed for a long time and supporting Kosovo in its growth and development. Uh, things to mention about Kosovo. Uh, Kosovo was part of former Yugoslavia that broke up in early 90s. And as a result, seven new countries uh, appeared, declared their independence. Uh, however, from that moment, early 90s, till uh, Kosovo declared independence, as you said, in 2008, uh, there was a, an armed conflict and a war there. Um, and as a result, uh, 12,000 people have been killed, almost one million uh, innocent uh, population was deported and exposed out of uh, Kosovo, and still we have around uh, 2,000 people that are still missing. So these are the 
wounds that people of Kosovo lived in the recent history. However, uh, this uh, humanitarian catastrophe was uh, prevented by an intervention of NATO forces uh, led by the United States. And uh, I said that yesterday, and my quote today is in all media in Kosovo, that Kosovars are very thankful to, to the support of United States. And without the support of United States, we wouldn't be free and we wouldn't be an independent state. But uh, to relate this to the talks we had in the last two, three days and the debates, United States supported and helped Kosovo and its people because uh, United States do believe in the justice and in human rights, and they prevented the humanitarian catastrophe. It's not uh, because United States had some uh, conspiracy interests in Kosovo because we are a small country, we are not that rich, we don't, we don't have any oil or something, we are not situated in very geostrategical uh, position in the world, but uh, the intervention of NATO uh, led by United States was simply because to install, to enforce justice and respect of human rights and to stop the discrimination and the uh, massacres that uh, have been done during two, 1998 and 1999. So this was the some part of the history. Um, as a newborn country, we have been recognized so far from 112 countries. The first country that recognized us was United States, just a few minutes after we declared independence. Thank you for that, all the time. <laughs> and then uh, we are recognized from the all democratic countries of the world. Uh, we are aiming, Kosovo is aiming to become part of the EU, European Union family. Uh, 23 out of 28 countries have already recognized Kosovo. We have progresses, we have challenges as well as an, at any uh, post-conflict uh, country. Uh, even beyond that, any country uh, today is having difficulties and challenges. But we are committed to prosper in our growth and development and we are doing this not alone but with friends. There is an old saying that says, if you want to walk fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you have to walk together. So we are walking together with uh, our friends. And one of the friends that contributed a lot is uh, your state here, mm -hmm. Iowa State. Mm -hmm. And these ties between Kosovo and Iowa are becoming stronger and uh, the roots of collaboration deeper. And we are committed to expand our collaboration in the coming uh, years and years. Mm. Well, I'm sure we're all committed to that, too, and that's wonderful. Before we move on to our next two guests, could I ask you, uh, for those powers or those nations that have not yet recognized Kosovo, what's the reasoning? The main, this is not secret, the main uh, country, powerful country that uh, rejects or opposes recognition of Kosovo as a country is Russia. Mm -hmm. And as we have seen in the last uh, years, but not even in, in the uh, longer past, uh, Russia is uh, playing a destructive role in many arenas, not only towards uh, Kosovo. And then uh, there are many countries that are uh, 
that have links with Russia or they are threatened by them. So I'm here talking mainly for the countries that are, have been part of former Soviet Union. And, but the main uh, thing is that Russia has veto power at the uh, Security Council of the United Nations. There are some other countries which usually when you ask them if they provide this opportunity to ask them why you don't recognize Kosovo, say uh, that they have some internal problems or issues and they don't want to create some precedence so some, part of, some parts of these countries to declare their independence as well. But this is not uh, the real issue. There is no uh, good reason behind any positioning uh, for not recognizing Kosovo. Because Kosovo was, a, as mentioned many times, a very unique case, sui generis. And uh, in the case of Kosovo, there have been implemented throughout the, um, his, the recent history several steps of developments. It was uh, apartheid from 1990s till uh, 1998. Then during 1998 and 1999, it was the war. Uh, after that, it was UN administration that uh, basically uh, was the government of, of Kosovo till, 19, um, till 2008. And then uh, UN Secretary General appointed uh, a pre former president uh, of Finland, uh, Marti Atisari, to lead negotiation for uh, the final status of Kosovo. And as a result of a very coordinated work and negotiations with all actors involved, President Atisari proposed independence for Kosovo. And then just few uh, months after, democratically elected representatives of people of Kosovo declared independence because it was time to do so. We were prepared, and I think we did the right and the just thing. Mm -hmm. And leaving aside for a second the, the complete um, unification of uh, international communities in terms of of um, recognizing your your statehood, do you feel that within Kosovo you are making the kinds of of um, uh, improvements, the kind of progress you would hope to be making at this point in your young statehood? As mentioned earlier, uh, there are huge progresses, and the people that are here in this room uh, are witnesses uh, and contributors for that. But we are living in very dynamic and rapid changing world. So uh, we shouldn't be enough satisfied with the developments. However, we are in the right path. And we are uh, totally committed to do that. The main uh, values in which we do believe are values of freedom, of peace, of democracy, of uh, market, of economy, with, of free competition. And these are uh, the values which we do share with the community of the democratic world. We will keep uh, continuing on that, and of course with the support of our friend people and friend countries and states, such as Iowa and the United States. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, so, Lieutenant Colonel One, let me ask you to tell us about your involvement with Kosovo. When did that all begin for you and for the Iowa National Guard? <clears throat> Excuse me, absolutely. And again, thank you for including the Iowa National Guard as part of these discussions. Um, you had mentioned earlier in 2003 is really when the relationship between
between Kosovo and the Iowa National Guard began. Uh, we, at that point, deployed approximately, I think, uh, three to 500 soldiers to Kosovo as part of a uh, Kosovo peacekeeping force. And uh, they spent about uh, six months in Kosovo working with their NATO partners to help secure and provide a, a safe and secure environment, really, for, uh, for Kosovo. Uh, my involvement personally began in 2005 when I was selected to be one of those peacekeepers, along with 14 other Iowans. I uh, went to Kosovo in February of 2005, and I spent a year as a uh, peacekeeper uh, as, with K4, and my position was as a public affairs officer. Uh, with the uh, multinational brigade that was responsible for that part of Kosovo. And so I had an opportunity uh, to really go out and work a lot, uh, not only with our NATO partners, but also with the Kosovo Protective Corps and the Kosovo media and, and really a lot of friends uh, from Kosovo. Yes, and so these other soldiers who were there with you um, developed a real connection with the people in Kosovo. Absolutely. You know, it, it's interesting. The Iowa National Guard and the National Guard generally is a very community-based organization. And when we deploy soldiers overseas, communities are very supportive. And one of the things that they typically do is they send care packages and they uh, send things to the soldiers that are deployed. And so we were the beneficiaries of all those care packages. And uh, quite frankly, we got more than we needed. And uh, it was a great opportunity for us to really go out and work with uh, the communities around Kosovo to share some of the things that we received. And so I think, you know, those soldiers being there as ambassadors of the U.S., as ambassadors of Iowa, going out, and because it was a peacekeeping environment, it was really the intent was to go out and to uh, really work with the people in the countryside to provide that safe and secure environment. And so that was an opportunity to go out and to meet uh, regular, everyday Kosovars. And, uh, and so that was something that happened, and really a lot of deep relationships started to develop uh, because you had that opportunity uh, to get out and meet them, and you really started to understand uh, the struggles that they had been through. You really started to understand uh, what they were trying to do uh, with their country, and uh, you really were humbled by the opportunity that you had as a U.S. military person to be working to help secure Kosovo and to help provide that security within that area. And uh, I think it really planted a lot of seeds uh, within our members that had been deployed. I know personally for me it did, and uh, you know, but for I think many members that had serving Kosovo would tell you the same thing. Yeah. So when you, uh, I know there may have been a language um, uh, difference between an average citizen of Kosovo and, and yourself as an English speaker, but um, you must have heard a number of personal stories, very sad stories, stories of people and families who were murdered and so on, um, or who died just in the course of the conflict. Um, what are some of the most uh, uh, resonant moments that you, could you share something with us from an individual family or person you spoke with while you were there? Well, just to, to begin with, really, you know, the great thing about, uh, you know, we have interpreters that go out with us, and the great thing about Kosovo is that they are, in large part, many of their young people are starting to speak English. And so those barriers really weren't there. And so we had opportunities uh, to really have conversations, and we would go to their homes, and, uh, you know, the hospitality that they would show to us is just unbelievable. And uh, even today, when we go over the hospitality that they show to us when we visit is, is very spectacular. Um, but, you know, over the course of time, you do get opportunities to hear their personal stories. And I, you know, I think what really impresses me more than anything else, it doesn't matter if it's somebody that was very young or if it was somebody that was actually a member of the Kosovo Liberation Army, they all have a story about that time. Um, they may have been a child in Pristina and they remember the bombings and the things that started to happen 
when that liberation started to come, where they would tell us stories about you know serving in the mountains of Kosovo and the struggles that they had. And so uh, you know what's really interesting, and, and, and you see that, and you know, we had um, just this last month, we had about 40 Iowa National Guard soldiers and airmen that were op given an opportunity to go to Kosovo and do a battlefield tour and hear firsthand um, from many of the people that have been involved in the conflict. And, uh, you know, again, that was deepening those relationships that they would have because they heard so many of those personal stories. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I necessarily want to dwell on an individual story, but I would just talk about how the fact that uh, the relationships that we develop and the stories that are shared with us really have an impact. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Uh, Kim, could we learn a little bit about what the sister state's relationship is between Iowa and Kosovo? Um, the sister state's uh, relationship with Kosovo technically started in 2013, um, soon after the signing or the relationship between the Kosovo Security Force and the Iowa National Guard started. We actually, between our two organizations, started to talk about if there was a way to cooperate, um, going along with General Orr's idea of the whole of Iowa, the whole of Kosovo theory. And so our board of directors, we have a volunteer board of directors that uh, agreed that we should participate. And then we started you know, working with our governor and um, was able to successfully have an agreement signed in 2013, which actually joined us. Um, our relationship with Kosovo uh, and all of our sister states uh, with these agreements are long-term. And so this is not something that we do lightly. We take this very seriously. And the areas of uh, cooperation that we're working in, um, you know, range from sister state to sister state. But in Kosovo's case, we have uh, quite a nice wide variety to work with. So we work in the sectors of agriculture to education, um, to business development, of course, um, to really, it, it's almost one of those things where it's whatever it is that you can come up with, if it's, it's an infinite possibility. Yeah, and I understand there's a scholarship arrangement that's been made with the uh, university. Yes, there is. Um, the University of Iowa, um, along with some other schools in the, the state, uh, offer specific scholarships for students from Kosovo and our other sister state students. Um, Iowa was the first uh, state school to come on board with, with that scholarship. So not only is it for Kosovo students to come here, but then Sister States also offers a uh, scholarship opportunity for Iowa students to go to Kosovo. And it's not just for, and in fact it's not really for degree-seeking students, it's for students that want to do short-term programs or even work in an intern basis. Mm -hmm. So um, you see this continuing relationship between Iowa and Kosovo when you're working in the foreign ministry at home and you're, you know, you're, you're out and about. What difference does it make really to uh, hopefully the long-lived state of Kosovo, but also right now as you are just really beginning to feel like a cohesive um, state, what difference does it make really to have these relationships with a state like Iowa? As mentioned earlier, Iowa is one of the uh, states that contributed for Kosovo in uh, in long time, in consistent way, in many arenas, as mentioned by Kim. Uh, we have uh, exchanges, exchange visits in many levels 
to the highest level. We have our students studying here in mm -hmm. Iowa. I had privilege to meet very good interns or how you call them, externs mm -hmm. that are doing externship <laughs> in, in Ministry of Foreign Affairs and different training, building the capacities of the people because our main resource uh, is uh, human resource and we very much appreciate all the intervention and the capacity building that uh, people and institutions of Iowa, including the University of Iowa, the National Guard, and other institutions that have provided in this long-term and in consistent way. As, as a result, now uh, we have culminated, if I can say, uh, our relationship between two states with an establishment of a consulate here, Kosovo consulate here in Iowa, which I understand is the first and the one yes, yes. here. And, <laughs> that. and I'm sure this is just the beginning. So now uh, we will have opportunities through a very uh, structured and coordinated and uh, making a lot of studies of future projects to continue our bilateral, and I can say uh, multilateral, uh, collaboration in many arenas between Kosovo and, and Iowa. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you mentioned that, yes. No, no. I just wanted to maybe uh, build a little bit on that and kind of talk about that question of the, uh, the so what piece, you know, why does it matter? And you're really from uh, this program, from the Iowa National Guard perspective, it's a security cooperation program. It's part of, uh, you know, the Department of Defense program to try to work with the Kosovo security force to help them develop capabilities and helping uh, professionalize their military force and really kind of understand some of those things uh, that they need as they develop into a, an armed force. And um, when we looked at it, you know, we're doing exchanges, small-scale uh, unit exchanges where we'll send people to Kosovo for, you know, a five- to seven-day period for them to work side-by-side -side, uh, with their Kosovo counterparts and the Kosovo security force, and likewise, they will come here. And uh, we'll continue to do that, and that's a great opportunity for the security of Kosovo to improve um, and their capabilities to provide for their own security at some point in time. Uh, but if we just focus on the security side and we don't focus on these other sectors, um, it could all be for naught because Kosovo has many challenges um, as, we, as we do here as well. But this is an opportunity for Iowa and Kosovo to work together to kind of impact some of those other sectors to kind of help improve uh, the unemployment rate, particularly the youth unemployment rate to look for economic and business opportunities for exchanges, for look at, you know, looking at those academic opportunities for exchanges, not just, uh, but also the cultural and the citizen-to-citizen -citizen type of opportunities that are very important to building that relationship. So that's part of that perspective, I think, that's important to look at as well. And does the Iowa National Guard have a similar relationship with any other state at this time, or is this really quite unique? Um, Kosovo is our only uh, international relationship, and my boss tells me all the time that that's what we're going to do. He says uh, Kosovo is a unique opportunity for us to be engaged in, and uh, we want to focus on working with Kosovo, and um, you know that's, that, that's really a great opportunity. I will tell you that other states that are involved in the SPP program, um, particularly it's about a 23-year-old program now, and some of them were started in the early 90s, and they were with uh, states that have, uh, you know, developed and, uh, you know, kind of uh, matured over time. And so they have taken on additional relationships. And there may become a point in time, and you know, when that happens with the Iowa National Guard in Kosovo. But uh, you know, for the time being and the, the, the foreseeable future, our focus will be on our friends in Kosovo. Great. 
Well, I say thank you so much. Kim Heidemann from Iowa Sister States and Lieutenant Colonel Michael One, thank you. And thank you very much, Valon Murtazai, the uh, Deputy Foreign Minister from Kosovo. Thank you so much for sharing this very interesting conversation with us. And I hope all of you will stay with us for the third part of this program. Uh, we'll be exploring the notion of self-determination and uh, some of the uh, states or states in aspiration that are, are seeking to find their own way. So, uh, World Canvas, for those of you who'd like to watch this again or hear it or share it with someone else, will be available on YouTube, on iTunes, and at the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Karen for International Programs. Thank you very much. And good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from the John and Mary Papa John Education Center in downtown Des Moines. It's a great pleasure to have you with us here in the room, and for those who are watching this program, uh, we remind you that this is part of a symposium that has been called The Nation, the State, and the Global Redefinition of Self-Determination. In this segment, our guests will focus on the evolving definition of self-determination. What does political self-determination mean in the world today? Does it all depend upon which side you're on? Or is there an impartial standard which can be met, has to be met, in order to validate claims to nationhood and statehood? It's my honor to introduce Jonathan Kutab. Very good to have you here. He's a co-founder of the Palestinian Center for the Study of Nonviolence. Mr. Kutab is a Palestinian Christian and human rights advocate. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Ambassador Ron McMullen. Uh, Ron served in multiple posts in many parts of the globe throughout his career in the Foreign Service. He was ambassador to the state of Eritrea, worked with Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, and pro-democracy groups in Burma, Myanmar. Ambassador McMullen has authored a number of scholarly works and is currently a visiting associate professor at the University of Iowa. So glad you could be here, Ron. Thank you. And at the end is Mikolas Fabri, Fabri, uh, Mickey Fabri, we'll call you Mickey, um, associate professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Thank you for coming all the way up here to Iowa. So um, where do we begin when we look at this question of political self-determination in a time when it seems that international borders are fungible and many nations and cultures are tearing apart at the seams? Larger and larger numbers of people in our country and around the world seem to have lost faith in institutions of government and perhaps even the notion of compromise toward a peaceful solution. Um, maybe I can start with you, Jonathan, and ask you to address this very complicated and long-standing question of Palestinians and self-determination, and what comes next for the, the people and land you care so much about? Well, you start with the people. Uh, the people of Palestine, the Palestinian people, uh, for a long time, uh, have felt that everybody speaks for them but themselves. We're not allowed to speak for ourselves. We're not allowed to live, act, and be free in our own home in our own homeland, and without going into all the uh, complexities of the Palestinian-Israeli struggle, uh, I think even if somebody came from Mars or Utah, they, they will arrive there and they'll find uh, in the land of Palestine-Israel, uh, there are two people. Uh, there's the Israelis who are enjoying all the uh, power and privilege of statehood and and uh, freedom and self-determination. And there's another people, millions upon millions of them, who don't have any control over their daily lives. 
the majority of our people are living in exile and cannot even return, even to visit their homes, their refugees. Uh, about two million people. Uh, last uh, week, I think we had the, the two millionth baby uh, born in Gaza, a really tiny, very crowded place that is under constant siege. Nobody can enter or leave. You can't have goods come in or be exported. You can't have your water, your electricity. Everything is uh, controlled by the Israelis, and, and people live there under uh, really terribly inhuman conditions. In the West Bank is another portion of the Palestinian people uh, trying to establish the beginning uh, of a nascent state, but uh, they're also under military control. Uh, the Israelis not only surround and control uh, this area, but they're also constantly taking more land and building exclusive settlements in the area which is supposed to be uh, a Palestinian state. Then we have some of our people in East Jerusalem, uh, like myself, also cut off from the rest of the Palestinian uh, population. And then you have uh, about 1.8 million who are Israeli citizens, but really have no power and no control uh, because Israel wants to be a Jewish state. So it views any non-Jewish person, even if he was a citizen, as uh, something of a uh, non-participant in the daily life of the people. And for many years, people would not even use the word Palestinian. They talk about us as the Arabs of Eretz Israel. Uh, so our identity, who we are as a people, our unity, our ability to elect whoever we want as our leaders, our ability to exercise uh, our language, uh, uh, write it, uh, write poetry in it without being arrested, uh, to have uh, freedom, uh, to be able to travel, to invite other people, to go and abroad and visit others, to live even, to move freely within uh, our country is all very severely restricted. So for us, self-determination is not just a political question of having a state although that's important to us, it's more to be able to live as human beings. So at the essence, at the rock bottom, self-determination is the ability to be yourself and to decide for yourself what should be your future, how you should live your life, how you should relate to other members of your community and to the world at large. Mm -hmm. So how do the Palestinian leaders these days um, at recognizing that there's a, a different, um, uh, the Gaza is different than the West Bank. How, how do the Palestinian leaders take this case to a world that many in the world listen to the Israeli concerns of uh, peace and and you know the their desire for for a Jewish state and so on? Uh, how, how do you make your case in a different way than you've made it before, so that people who have have lived with one mentality for a long time can see that it's time now to find a new way? Well, it's. Uh... It's difficult if one starts by negating or delegitimizing or treating an entire people as an enemy, as somehow hostile, uh, as terrorists. Uh, whenever we fight for our uh, rights, which is a legitimate thing, 
even though I'm a pacifist, I don't believe violence solves any problem. But when you fight for your right, uh, that's viewed as not legitimate. And so after a while, we ask, you know, we are human beings. We have been living like this uh, for decades. We've been living in our land for centuries, for millennia. And now all of a sudden, we are being told, you don't belong here. Well, where do we belong? Uh, this is our land. Uh, this is our country. We have no other place to be. Uh, so uh, I think one of the ways to do it is, uh, uh, as I said, through nonviolence. Uh, we present our case uh, not because we are powerful, we are not, uh, but because we are people. We are human. We have our culture. We have our poetry. We have our community. We have our traditions. Uh, I'm very proud. I grew up in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Uh, Jerusalem is my city where he was buried and was resurrected. Uh, for me, uh, to be Palestinian is to, to assert my humanity at every level and my willingness to deal with everybody else as a human being. Do you feel that there is international will now or will on the part of the United States and other major powers to uh, come to this two-state solution? or? or well, there, there is a very large uh, degree of international acceptance and willingness. The word Palestine is no longer taboo. There was a time when it was taboo, when, you know, to raise our flag, you could be shot just for raising the flag uh, or, or, or killed or put in prison. Uh, today, the vast majority of the countries of the world uh, are willing to accept some kind of uh, Palestinian statehood or at least Palestinian right of self-determination. Uh, the problem is that uh, with the state of Israel, building settlements for Jews only, and having a lot of power and a lot of sympathy in many quarters, uh, and uh, the United States, for whatever reasons, uh, continues to block efforts at the international level uh, through the veto at the Security Council, through uh, resistance in many organizations, uh, like UN organizations, uh, they try to resist allowing Palestinians a right. Now, recently, we acceded to the International Criminal Courts uh, because we wanted to be part of it. And many countries resisted because they said, the next thing you'll do is you'll be bringing war crimes charges against Israel because they do commit war crimes and they don't want to be tried for what they are doing. Uh, so we, we have a fight on our hands, but, but we hope it's a fight that can be resolved uh, without violence, because violence does not help anybody. Uh, well, thank you for starting us off. And, and uh, now let me move to a man who has spent his professional life in the Foreign Service for the United States. And you have uh, been in many, many countries around the world in many different roles. And you have seen these kinds of um, internal uh, arguments about the future of a nation or a minority group within a nation and how they try to assert their rights and so on. Um, Follow up on what Jonathan has had to say here and tell us why it is that it can be so hard for people to get the kind of support they need for a new kind of recognition. In part because the standards for self-determination have been evolving, have been moving. 
And I'd like to go back sort of three phases that we've seen in the evolution of self-determination since, since 1960, when the UN General Assembly passed the resolution calling for the self-determination of non-self-governing territories. And many people called this the saltwater decolonization resolution because France and Britain and Portugal had colonies separated by saltwater from the metropole. And the UN General Assembly established a long list uh, of non-self-governing territories that should move towards um, uh, sort of self-government. And the, they headed a list uh, that was called the Committee of 24 that made this long list and oversaw it. And they joined something called the Trusteeship Council. The Trusteeship Council had inherited some orphan territories from the League of Nations. There were 11. And the Trusteeship Council said there are three ways to, to exercise the right of self-determination. One is independence. The second is called free association, where a people in a territory freely choose to associate themselves with another state and maybe delegate maybe foreign relations and defense. So that was the second way. The third way was uh, integration with an existing state. And so um, all 11 of the trustee territories now have exercised their right of self-determination. On this long list from the, the Committee of 24, all but 17 non-self-governing territories have exercised one of those three methods of self-determination. And of, of the 17 that remain, they include three U.S. territories, um, um, Guam, uh, uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and American Samoa, interestingly. So from 1960 until Christmas Day of 1991, this self-determination for colonies separated by salt water from the metropole really was the way. And the US was very supportive of decolonization. Christmas Day of 1991, Gorbachev dissolved the last remaining large multinational empire in Europe. And we saw the creation overnight of 15 new countries. And this element led to, I think, the idea of self-determination for elements of another multinational uh, remnant of the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans. And we saw Yugoslavia begin to um, come apart and people exercise their right of self-determination there. So since Christmas Day of 91, um, the third phase has been default setting against new countries created. And the rule of thumb now is that to become a new uh, recognized country, you have to have the agreement of the mother country. It's really anti-secessionist. And without the approval of the mother country, it's really hard. Mickey reminded me earlier that um, Bangladesh had done this, one of the exceptions in 71 when Bangladesh seceded from Pakistan. And Kosovo's uh, secession from Serbia without the approval of the mother country is unique. It shows what a special case that Kosovo is. But the US is dead set against uh, willy-nilly creation of newly independent states. Somebody calling from Palestine. <laughs> so it, uh, it's been uh, very, very difficult for you know, potential new countries to to make it, and that's one reason why Kosovo is so special and such a unique case. And we heard in our earlier segment that the U.S. really had a very great deal to do with moving Kosovo forward. And and from your position, uh, you know, as a 
government uh, diplomat, why did the U.S. see this as different? Was it the human rights angle that seemed so obvious? I think um, it goes back to Somalia and Rwanda. Somalia, we intervened on humanitarian basis to get foodstuffs to starving Somalis. And we got caught up in a conflict that we didn't understand. We suffered 18 casualties in the Black Hawk Down incident. So we thought, oh, we don't want to get involved in internal disputes like this. So we sat on our hands as 800,000 Rwandans were chopped up by their neighbors in a horrible genocide. And the people who were in the Clinton administration thought they were having nightmares. They thought we should have done something. We overlearned the lesson of Somalia, stayed out of Rwanda, and when it appeared that uh, Serbia and forces in Kosovo were intent on genocide, I think it moved people morally to intervene in the, the right to protect. And I think it was the human rights situation uh, that prompted the U.S. to take this exception. And maybe so as well in Bangladesh, uh, in, but particularly in Kosovo, I think it was the human rights situation. Well, Nikki, uh, let's talk to you a little bit about the, how you understand this um, self-determination in the world we live in right now. I think uh, my colleague really captured it well. Um, the, the regime um, of self-determination as it exists in international relations and law uh, today really goes back to post-1945 decolonization. And um, what we have seen since then um, has been that countries that had colonial status, non-self-governing and trust uh, territories, um, got, for the most part, uh, independence very easily. Uh, there were some exceptions, but for the most part, it was, it was a fairly smooth sailing. Um, uh, to the extent that there were consensual changes to statehood, either consensual secessions or consensual mergers, for example, South Sudan being a case of consensual secession, uh, or uh, United Germany being a case of uh, consensual merger in, in 1990, these were not problematic either. Uh, but to the extent that you have had unilateral self-determination claims, that is, those claims that did not get uh, the consent of the parent state, um, these were generally opposed right from, from 1960, right from the kind of height of decolonization. Um, and, and the problem with these uh, you know, cases uh, has been that they have been um, uh, almost all, some exception, um, uh, some exceptions, but almost all violent to one extent or another. In some cases, very violent uh, to the extent that you know some elicited uh, external involvement, including uh, military intervention. I, I think we have heard today that the world has become more sensitive uh, to human rights, human rights violations, particularly in the post-Cold War period. Um, and um, I think in the case of Kosovo in particular, um, but also previous in the case of Bosnia, uh, there was, uh, I think, um, you know, um, a sense that certain acts cannot be left uh, unanswered. Uh, the, the challenge has been that, um, uh, you know, in the cases like Kosovo, um, unlike, say, Bangladesh in 1971, which was also a terrible case of human rights violations, uh, there was an international agreement on how to deal with the questions of statehood. Um, and uh, Kosovo, in particular, engendered a very bitter uh, division uh, internationally in, in, in 2008. And, and, and the problem has been that the main opposing uh, force there, is, as we heard from Deputy Foreign Minister, um, 
of, of Kosovo uh, has been Russia. And Russia is powerful enough uh, to do a lot of mischief internationally. And have, they have used uh, the, uh, what they call the Kosovo precedent uh, for um, uh, recognizing South Ossetia and Abkhazia in the Caucasus, uh, and then uh, for recognizing uh, Crimea uh, as, as a case of unilateral secession prior to incorporating uh, Crimea into the Russian Federation. And we have not found a way, uh, as, as the international community, to deal with these uh, divisions. I'd like to correct one uh, misconception. Somebody listening would think that uh, the Palestinians do not have a legal uh, right of uh, self-determination under international law. In fact, the opposite is, is true. Uh, there are numerous pronouncements of the United Nations General Assembly and Security Council that the Palestinian people are entitled to self-determination uh, as a matter of law, uh, under international law. I, the, I think the problem has been in trying to implement that right. And uh, the territory where that right is to be implemented being constantly taken away by these illegal settlements, uh, which is why even a country that is totally and thoroughly uh, on the side of Israel is constantly complaining about their illegal settlement activities because they are undermining uh, the basis for a Palestinian state as part of a resolution. Uh, so I just wanted to correct the... The, uh, the truth is that the Palestinian case doesn't quite fit uh, any of these. Um, I think Palestine has been treated as somewhat of a quasi-colonial territory, that is territory that has not completely decolonized. Um, and in many UN uh, resolutions, um, it has been listed with all the other territories that had not been uh, decolonized. So, but yes, formally it was not a non-self-governing or trust territory. Um, but I would, I would uh, certainly uh, agree that everybody today, um, just like in the case of colonial territories, agrees that the Palestinian people have a right to self-definition, including the government of Israel. So why aren't we there? Why, why is there? I mean, what, what should happen? In, in a perfect world, what would happen if the international community recognizes that the Palestinian people have a right to self-determination? Um, obviously, the neighboring states have some concerns, but why doesn't it move beyond where we seem to have been stuck for quite a long time? <laughs> I, can, uh, I, can, I can say very clearly, there are just very powerful forces, political forces, preventing it. And uh, I, I, I was so interested in the fact that the people of uh, this state have taken an interest in Kosovo on a personal, direct, humanitarian, people-to-people -people level. Uh, in many ways, the, if the government, the federal government of the United States does not really act, maybe it's for the people to start acting. This is why the BDS movement calling for boycotts, for divestment from these illegal settlements, for sanctions against those who are violating international law, is a people movement. And it's a nonviolent movement, and it's a way to start moving the needle a little bit when, when, when things are so clear. There is a right that is recognized, but that's not being implemented. When there are people who are suffering continuously, we are approaching the 50th anniversary 
of the occupation of the West Bank in Gaza. And, and it's time for the world to change. And if the governments don't do anything, maybe students, churches, ordinary people, uh, individual states maybe can start acting to bring that about. Well, from the position of someone who, uh, if, if you were tomorrow appointed the ambassador between the United States and, and the ambassador to Israel for the United States, um, obviously Israel has its own concerns about, uh, you know, its, its own wishes, not only for its own territory, but its place in the world. And for so many years, as long as I can remember hearing the news, um, Israel has been called the, the one friend we have in the Middle East in terms of, you know, political... Uh, if somebody's pushing a certain kind of relationship, they say, this is our one friend in the Middle East. Uh, uh, is that changing over the years? Have you heard that? If I was the ambassador in, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, I would be stationed in Tel Aviv and not Jerusalem. Because the United States, uh, back when the, uh, the U.N. Uh, partition plan was being set up, they had uh, the UN plan was that uh, Jerusalem, including Bethlehem, five miles south of Jerusalem, would be part of an internationally controlled corpus separatum, a separate body. And there were parts of uh, the Palestinian mandate that were going to be under Arab control and under uh, Israeli control with uh, 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 transport links between the areas. And we saw the wars of 1944. 748 uh, destroy the, the plan by the UN uh, to um, have two countries arrive at, uh, at independence with this very interesting corpus separatum, this internationally administered joint sort of a, a tri-fecta condominium uh, to rule the politically important and religiously valuable city of uh, of uh, Jerusalem, including Bethlehem. And so I wouldn't be in Jerusalem, I would be in Tel Aviv because the United States still adheres to that corpus separatum. Um, our consulate in um, East Jerusalem is our primary li liaison with the Palestinian people and provides lots of humanitarian and other uh, work in the um, Palestinian parts of the former Palestine mandate. Maybe just give you a general answer. Um, I, I don't have any crystal ball on how to solve, you know, some of the, you know, intractable problems we have. But um, even when you have, say, agreement on who has the right to self-determination, as you have in the Palestinian case, um, quite often what you have in these long uh, conflicts is a lot of issues that need to be settled. So the right to self-determination is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, uh, you have problem often of refugees in many of these conflicts. You have problem of borders, territories, and in the case of Palestine, uh, in the problem of the capital, uh, which has, you know, in Jerusalem has, you know, all, all this tremendous importance historically. Uh, and it's, it's unrealistic um, to really expect that there can be a viable solution to the conflict without somehow dealing with all these other uh, issues. And, um, Self-determination conflicts have been historically very difficult to solve uh, without solving all these pieces of, of, of the puzzle. And usually, there are a, a, a number of them. Um, and so uh, that has been you know, impossible so far in the Israeli-Palestinian case. Um, I, I, you know, I don't really have a clear answer how to do it, um, but um, I, I don't know how one can have 
a viable Palestinian state on the ground without in some form, uh, you know, Israel accepting that, that, that fact. Um, you know, how you move negotiations forward um, successfully, uh, I, I really don't know. But this, this really, uh, I think, captures why self-determination conflicts are so difficult to, to solve. They tend to be uh, really enmeshed in a, in a web of many different problems that need to be usually solved at the same time. Kind of bizarre Iowa connection to a self-determination problem, issue. Um, not too far from here in southeast Iowa is the beautiful town of Fairfield, Iowa, which has a very unique educational institution, uh, Maharishi International University, which specializes in teaching and research of creative, non-traditional uh, subjects and courses. It was the brainchild of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the guru to the Beatles. Um, and the Maharishi um, at one point wanted to have his own country and tried to establish uh, in the Pacific the global capital of world peace. He went to the Republic of Tuvalu in the Pacific. Tuvalu is shaped like a pearl necklace. It has 10,000 people in about 10 square miles. It's a member of the United Nations. And the Maharishi's folks made the Republic of Tuvalu an offer of $200 million for one of the pearls that they would cede sovereignty over one of the little islets in, uh, in Tuvalu. Um, and he would then want to establish the international capital, or the global capital of world peace. And so the, uh, the uh, ambassador from Tuvalu, or the high commissioner from Tuvalu, came to me and said, Ron, do you know anything about the Maharishi Maheshogi? I said, well, yeah, he's got a university in Iowa. He said, he's just made us a $200 million offer to buy an island in which we would cede sovereignty. He said, he said what do you think? I said, Tuvalu is the newest, at this time, was the newest member of the United Nations, and you need to be a good international citizen. And imagine, right now, today, the United States recognizes 195 countries as independent. I said, imagine if we had an international system of 2,000 countries. How difficult it would be at the United Nations to have 2,000 countries there, to have embassies uh, all over. I said, so I think it's incumbent, I said, rent him the island for, you know, indefinitely. Don't cede sovereignty. Um, and I said, it would be very, very difficult to see Tuvalu as a good member of the international community if you cede. I said, so the Catholic Church has its own country, the Holy See. Um, but what if the Methodist wanted to buy one of your pearls? What if the Lutherans did? Or what if Google did? Or what if a Chinese triad criminal organization wanted to buy one? I said, so you've got to be a good citizen of the international community and don't cede sovereignty over one of your islands. So the Maharishi Mahashogi passed away and never got his own country, uh, partly because of this international default setting against self-determination under sort of willy-nilly no, rules. No, no. That's, that's against uh, sovereignty and ceding sovereignty. Mm -hmm. and, and it's totally different from self-determination. When you, when you have the Palestinian people, uh, over 10 million people, uh, at, at least 6 million of them living directly on their land, under the control of another country, which doesn't have sovereignty there. Well, I'm, uh, this not, is, I'm not disagreeing. It's just it, it's showing how hard it is with this international default setting against this, against international recognition of new states. Uh, it makes it harder for... Uh, countries to exercise self-determination 
um, as you pointed out. Well, I, this has been a really good discussion. Thank you all so much. And, and uh, uh, I'll just say thank you to Jonathan Kutab. I want to thank, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much, Ron McMullen. And thank you, Mickey Fabry. I really appreciate it. And I know we'll all have lots of thoughts in our head at the end of this, this evening. So I want to in invite any of you seeing or hearing this program or anyone in this room to join us for future World Canvas discussions. They generally take place in Iowa City on the campus of the University of Iowa in the Voxman Music Building. And again, this program will be available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website in just a few days. And um, thank you for hosting us here in Des Moines. This has been lovely. Uh, thank you very much for being here, and good night. <laughs>